Well, Happy New Year! It is great to see you here at church in 2019. And as the new year begins, we begin our study of ancient prophecy that's going to tell us the future from the book of Daniel. So I invite you to open your Bible and turn there with me, page 737. If you got one of our books here today, and we are going to begin uh, the revelation of the Old Testament, you could refer to it as, here in Daniel, in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's actually one of the books towards the end of the Old Testament. And Jesus himself referred to Daniel as a prophet in Matthew 24, 15. And so we're going to get to see the story of this man from when he was a teenager to when he has been in Babylon or Medo-Persia for 70 years. And we're going to, it's 12 chapters. We're going to take it a chapter at a time, and we're going to study it from now up till Easter. And so I hope you'll really get excited about looking at this book. This is a word from God to us. Uh, Daniel chapter 1. I just want to read the first two verses to get us started as we begin to get in the mindset of the ancient Near East here. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So if you're taking notes and you want to uh, jot down some facts here, what we're talking about is 605 B.C. That's when this takes place. 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you've heard of him before, and the big old Babylonian army, they come and they besiege, they surround the little kingdom here of Judah, what's left of God's people of Israel, here the southern kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and they come and besiege them, and they actually come and take some of the articles of the temple. So these are the, the things that we read about in the first five books, the things that were specifically built to worship God in the temple, to, to keep his worship holy and pure. They take these vessels and they take them all the way back to Babylon and they put it in the temples where they worship their gods. And so we have to get in the mindset of an ancient culture here. We have to understand what people were thinking at this time, 605 BC, and everybody believed in God. In fact, most nations had multiple gods that they believed in. They were polytheistic. And the nations thought that this God maybe gave us rain and made the crops grow, or this God made us fertile so we could have children. Like, these gods are doing things for us, and so we worship them. And so when Babylon comes against Judah, and there's a clash, not just between kings, they would think of it as a clash, our God versus your God. And so if Babylon can just come in and wipe these guys out and take the articles of the temple and take it back to their temple, what they're saying is our God is greater than your God. All these Babylonian idols that we worship are better than Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel. And that's why Israel would have stood out among the nations at this time where they had one God, Yahweh. See, most nations had multiple gods. 
And so what this would have seemed like, if you were reading the ancient Near Eastern newspaper here, you would have thought, wow, I guess the Babylonians have stronger gods than Israel. If they're able to come and win a military victory like that, their gods must be greater. Just another example of this kind of thinking where nation versus nation was God versus God. Do you remember the Philistines? Anybody remember the Philistines? Uh, enemy of Israel. And uh, David, we know, killed Goliath, the great giant. But there was one time you can read about in 1 Samuel 5 when the Philistines won a military victory over the people of God. And so they brought the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you saw it on Indiana Jones one time. The, the Ark of the Covenant. They brought it and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, the, the god there of the Philistines. And so they've got this idol uh, Dagon, and they put the Ark of the Covenant before it, and it, what they're basically saying is our God, Dagon, is greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they have this kind of praise time, this celebration, and then they go to sleep. They come back the next morning, and this is in 1 Samuel 5. You can check it out. And they find Dagon, their God, their idol, falling face down, bowing down towards the Ark of the Covenant. Have you heard this one before? Like their idol literally falls over and bows down to worship. Uh, and they're like, this is slightly awkward that our idol has fallen over in the middle of the night. Seems like he's worshiping their, their box there, the Israelite box. This is awkward. So we pick, we pick him back up. We set Dagon back up. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's reigning. And we come back the next morning, and not only has Dagon fallen over like he's worshiping face down the God of Israel, but his head and his arms this time have been cut off of his idol body there, right? So uh, it was the thought that when we win a victory, our God defeated your God. But notice verse 2. This is so important that we all see this. Daniel 1, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. This was actually God's plan, to give up his own people to another nation. God is still in control. What, what Daniel 1, 2 is saying is God didn't get defeated. Sometimes it looks like God's not doing too well down here on planet Earth. But do not be deceived. God is the sovereign one. God is on the throne. He reigns supreme. And this was all a part of God's plan. God's plan is always working. That's what Daniel 1, 2 is saying. In fact, the main character in Daniel 1 is not Daniel, although we're going to learn from his example. The main character in Daniel 1 is God. Three different times in Daniel 1 it says, and God gave, or the Lord gave. You could write it down if you're taking notes. Verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17 are all statements about what God is doing because he's actually the one in control of everything that happens in this chapter. In fact, here's what's amazing. God had said that the Babylonians specifically were going to come in and they were going to carry the Israelite stuff back to Babylon. In fact, God had even prophesied that they would come and take some of the best and brightest of the young men of Israel and take them back to Babylonian brainwashing academy. This was all prophesied. A hundred years before it happens here in 605 B.C., Isaiah, around 700 B.C., he said this was going to happen. This was God's plan all along. Turn with me to Isaiah 39, just a few pages over to the left here in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 39, it's on page 599 if you got one of our books. So God is judging his people here in Judah. 
And he sent prophets like Isaiah and prophets like Jeremiah who have warned the people that they were not obeying God's commands and they needed to repent of their sin so that God would relent of his judgment. But if they continued in their sin, they would be judged by God. And the people didn't listen to Isaiah. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. There were other prophets as well. They did not repent of their sin. They continued in it. And now, here it comes. The Babylonians are coming to judge. God's handing his own people over to the Babylonians to judge them because they will not repent of their sin before him. And he prophesied it. You're reading here with me Isaiah 39. And Hezekiah, the king here, he does something so foolish where he shows the Babylonians all their stuff. Look at all the cool stuff we've got here in my palace. Do you guys want to see all the stuff in the temple? We've got amazing stuff. And, and, and Isaiah's like, what are you doing, king? They're going to come and carry all that stuff away. Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy from God himself. Behold... The days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They're going to come and take it all. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is not what you want to hear for your sons, okay? I've talked to a lot of people, and they tell me, well, when my kids grow up, I hope they do this or that. Nobody has ever said, I hope my boy grows up to be a eunuch in the king's palace. Nobody's ever said that to me. I mean, this is devastating, what he's saying here. Like, hey, all of your young sons, the princes, the future kings, you know what they're going to do? They're going to end up serving some other king as eunuchs in his palace. This is a devastating prophecy here. Babylon is going to come in. And they're going to carry all your stuff away. They're even going to carry your future, your potential, your young princes. They're going to carry them away. That's what's going to happen. A hundred years later, it happens because God can tell us what he's going to do before he does it. And there is no one like this. Okay, maybe you've heard that some of the other religious books out there, they have prophecies just like the Bible. That is not true. Specific things like this that happen a hundred years after they say they're going to happen. There is no other book that has this level of prophecy that you can read about. And God, he does it all over. In fact, a lot of the Old Testament is just telling us what's going to happen. So then when it happens, we'll know this was God's plan all along. And he's in control of human history. And he's been working for his glory and the good of his people from the beginning all the way to the end. Nothing deviates from the plan of God. And he'll tell us what he's going to do even before he does it. So when he does it, we'll appreciate it. That's how it works. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, that's where we just got the idea of that song we just sang. Behold our God. Can you see who God is? Everybody gather around and let's just look at the awesomeness and worship God for who he really is. Isaiah 40 is where we get that idea. It says everybody gather around and behold who God is. And then in these Isaiah 40 and following chapters, God speaks in the first person. God tells us who he is, and he says, there is no one like me. You go look at all these idols. You go look at all these other nations and all the gods that they're supposedly worshiping. Let me tell you, there is no other God. I am the Holy One, and there is no one like me. In fact, one of the ways 
that God wants to prove to us that he alone is God is he's the only one who can tell us the future before it happens. Prophecy is the signature of God on his word, proving to us that the Bible is reliable and we should believe it to be the revelation of God himself to us. And look what he says in Isaiah 41, verse 21. It's at the bottom of page 601. Isaiah 41, verse 21. Look at how he trash talks all the idols, all the false gods here. How he compares them to himself. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. You want to prove you're a god? Okay, bring your idol and and tell us what's going to happen before it happens. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. You want to prove that you're God? Okay, tell us what you're going to do, and then go ahead and do it. Okay, show us. Call your own shot, and then make it happen. That's what God does. Can you do that? This is God challenging all the idols that people are worshiping. And then he says in verse 24, Behold, you are nothing, your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. God is exposing the falseness of all the idols, of all the other nations, because they cannot tell you what is going to happen because they are not God. They are not in control. They are not sovereign, reigning supreme over the affairs of human history. There's only one God who can do that. In fact, you might want to memorize or write down Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. This is a good summary uh, of why God gives us prophecy, what he's trying to accomplish by telling us the future before it happens. And he says here, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I told you what was going to happen. Now it has happened. I'll tell you some more new things before they happen. I'll tell you what they are. God wants us to believe through his prophetic word that he is in control of history. In fact, point number one, you can write it down like this. Your history is his story. Your history is his story. He is the one who is controlling all things. And you can think of that on a massive global level, that God is actually writing the story of history of nations and rulers of nations. And you can think about it in the story of your life, that God is the author. He is the sovereign one in control of your existence on this planet. It doesn't happen unless God gives his people up to Babylon. They might be the mightier nation. They might have the bigger army, but God is the one who's actually in control, giving his people up in judgment to Babylon, just like he said he was going to through his prophets. And as we begin 2019, I don't know where you're at. If you're at the heights, if your circumstances look good, if you're at the depths, if your circumstances look bad, but I've got something to tell you that's going to happen all year long is God is in control. He sits on the throne and God is sovereign over your life. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? That's the truth, okay? Big old King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the most powerful man in the world. Well, let me tell you, the powerful man in the world, he can do nothing unless God allows him to do it. That's how it works. 
getting a little concerned about what's happening in America, getting a little concerned about our nation hitting an all-time moral low. You're starting to see what the other nations are doing. You're starting to look at the political climate. You're starting to wonder what's going to happen down here on planet Earth. Let me tell you, sometimes it looks really bad down here. God's still on the throne in heaven. He's in control. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now go back to Daniel chapter 1, and, and you'll see here that we start to meet Daniel and his three friends. So our story now is going to go from the nation of Israel being, being invaded, besieged, stuff being taken, and some of the youths here in 605 B.C. get taken back to Babylon. So now we're going to go along with these four teenagers, Daniel and his three friends, these youths, and we're going to follow them like pilgrims into a foreign land. Look what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king, King Neb, we're going to get to know him pretty well, king, the king commanded Ashpenaz. Here's another one of our characters, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Now that's a title right there, Ashpenaz, chief eunuch of the king, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance. Okay, so we're looking for the most noble, most royal princes of Israel, and we're taking the handsome ones. Some of us would not have been selected for this, is what, is what it's saying right here, all right? Uh, but they're, they're taking the best, they're taking the brightest. We're going straight for the most likely to succeed. We're going for the, the homecoming king. That's who we're taking to Babylon. In fact, it goes on to say here, they've got to have not only a good appearance, they've got to be skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. And then we're looking at their SAT scores, their ACT scores, how many AP classes have they had. And we're going to make them competent to stand in the king's palace. We're going to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We've got Babylon Brainwashing Academy, and we're looking for the best and brightest of Israel to enroll in our program. That's what's going on. And what they're really doing here, what King Neb is trying to do is very shrewd. He's trying to destroy. He doesn't want to just like, come and besiege the people of Israel. He wants to destroy their worship in their God, and he wants to destroy their future. These are the princes. These guys are going to be the guys leading Israel in the future. These guys are going to be the king and his advisors, and they're saying, no, we're going to go make them one of us. In fact, we're going to make them eunuchs so these royal and noble lines can't even continue into the future. We're going to destroy all of your youth, all of your potential, the next generation. We're taking them with us. That's, it's totally trying to debilitate and demoralize God's people and make them think that the Babylonians have won and they have lost their identity. And then these guys, they're going to go to these young men. And a lot of scholars estimate they're somewhere around 15 years old when they get taken into this program. I mean, we're talking about a little older than junior high, like freshman or sophomore in our high school ministry. And we're coming in, we're looking for the best and the brightest, and we're taking them to another country, another culture, another language, and we're going to make them one of us. It says here, you can see it in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food. They're literally living in the king's palace. And they're going to eat the king's food. They're going to drink the king's wine. It says here they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Want to talk about a final exam, right? You got a three-year program to become one of us. And at the end, 
The final exam is King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the most powerful man in the world, a complete egotistical maniac, we're going to find out. And he's going to ask you whatever question he wants. You have to answer it. I mean, this is what these guys are put into. And then this happens, and this is uh, really interesting here in verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So out of the young men taken, four of them are going to be the guys we focus on. And the chief of the eunuchs, so here comes Ashpenaz here, and he's going to give them names. He's going to change all of their names. Daniel, he's going to call Belteshazzar. Hananiah, it says here, he's going to call Shadrach. Mishael is Meshach. And Azariah is Abednego. All of you guys get new names. No more Hebrew names. Now you've got Babylonian names. Okay? Now who's heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before? Okay? I want you to unhear that if possible. Okay? It's, it's tragic that these guys are known more for their Babylonian names when they're trying to brainwash them than they are known for their Hebrew names given by their mom and dad. And, and these names all really mean something. There's, this is really significant. We didn't just take over your nation. What they're saying to Daniel and his three buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are the names we should learn. They want to take over their soul. They want to take over their identity. They want to make them Babylonians. For example, Daniel's name means God is my judge. So this is a, a Hebrew name, and maybe if you know anything about Hebrew... It's a complicated ancient language. It goes from right to left. But maybe you know that El or Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. Can you see El there at the end of Daniel, right? So his name means God is my judge. Well, now we give him the name Belteshazzar, which means this false idol of Babylon, Bel, protect the king. So, of course, if Daniel seems like the best of the, the bunch, he, you know, of course he gets the name that's all about the king, because that's what it's all about in Babylon, is King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this guy, you're here now to protect the king. You go from living for God to please him to living for the king to please him. That's what they're trying to do with Daniel. Hananiah is a beautiful Hebrew name that means the Lord is gracious. That, I mean, God is good is basically what his name means. Look how, look how good God has been to us as his people. No, Hananiah, that's not your identity. We don't want you thinking God is good. Now you're under the command of a coup. And a coup, he's not very gracious. In fact, he's, you're lucky he's even letting you live and you better do what a coup says. That's, that's the tone that we're getting here. Maybe you can see it best in, in Mishael. Mishael, notice the L at the end of his name. Who is like the Lord? Who is like God? There is no one like God. That's what we just heard. Like God is unique out of everyone, and nobody's worshiping a God like our God. Actually, no, who is what a coup is. That's what, me, that's what your new name is. See how they're trying to get inside the minds of these young men. They're trying to tell them, you don't worship that God anymore. You don't live according to that culture anymore. We've got something better for you now. Come on into the king's palace. Would you like our food? Would you like our wine? Hey, you're going to be this guy now. This is going to be the new you. It's going to be better. That's what they're doing. They're coming for who they are on the inside, not just the outside invasion. They want to take their identity. Last one here, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, then we get to Azariah. Azariah, what does his name mean? The Lord is my helper. This is what we're going to see, men, if you come to breakfast on Saturday morning. Real men need help. We need God to be our helper. What a great, strong Hebrew name. What's your new name? Abednego. That means servant of Nego, servant of Nebo, one of the false idols there in Babylon. 
So they're trying to take these guys over. And then verse 8 comes. And verse 8 is really the verse that, that is most famous of Daniel chapter 1. This is the verse that sets the tone for the rest of the 12 chapters that we're going to study. What this 15-year-old young man decides in his heart here is so important. And it really shapes his character. It shapes his future. Uh, the whole life of Daniel, we're going to study it, his whole life, and how God uses him in amazing ways. But it starts with the decision that me, he makes in his heart right here in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, he dares to go up to Ashpenaz, here and he allowed him not to defile himself he goes up to ashpenaz and he says hey i'm not buying into the system hey i'm not going to worship other gods i will not defile myself before my god god is still go you can give me a new name but god is still going to be my judge that's what daniel says you've been invaded you've been taken from your home everything you know and love is gone and here they are with their army with their power with their impressive palace and they're trying to wine and dine you and tell you who you're going to be and this young man says you're not taking me not my soul you can you can do whatever you want on the outside but you can't touch me on the inside that's what daniel does here you want to talk about making a resolution. You want to talk about making a decision in your heart that could shape the whole rest of your year, the whole rest of your future. This is the example right here. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about why it specifically does it talk about the king's food and the king's wine. Why is that where Daniel draws the line? And there's lots of theories out there, and you can spend a lot of time reading about it. And people are like, well, here's why it was so important that he didn't eat the food. And so the food really becomes the focus of Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. And one of the reasons they say maybe Daniel and his friends committed to not eating the food is because of the dietary laws of the people of Israel. So the people of Israel, to this very day, if you go to Israel with us this summer, they eat much differently there than we do. They, they have this fundamental belief going back to the law, to the Torah, that there are clean animals and there are unclean animals, and there's this whole kosher idea way of eating. So if you go to Israel with us, it's so exciting. It's, it's an amazing trip, and you get there, and you're like, yes, what's the food like here? This is going to be great. And there's this beautiful buffet there prepared before you, and you're like, yes, the cuisine of the Mediterranean. This is so exciting. And you start, and you eat it, and then the next day you come to, to the same meal, and it's the same exact food. And then the third day you come, and it's like the same exact meal. And you're like, wait a minute. Are we going to eat this every day of this trip? This is not how I normally eat. Like, like, where is the meat and the cheese put together here, please? You know, that's what you start thinking. And then by like the fifth and sixth night, some of us have found a hotel where they can actually make American cheeseburgers, and we're like sneaking over there and having like a little worship service in the Holy Land. You know what I'm talking about? So the Israelites, the Jews, the Orthodox, they eat really differently. Is that why Daniel's refusing the king's food? That's what some people speculate. 
Other people, they're like, well, I think that perhaps this wine and this food in the king's palace was offered up to these idols, to Bel, to Aku, to Nebo here, these, these idols that they worship. And so that's something the Bible talks about. Should you eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe they feel like eating this food is a part of worship of these gods, and so they're refusing the food because they won't defile themselves and they won't worship anyone but the true and living God, Yahweh, of the people of Israel. So maybe it's because they're sacrificed to idols that they're not eating the food. One of the big theories, maybe you've heard this one, it's become really popular, is Daniel is making a conscious resolve here to a healthier standard of living. That's what it's all about. He's going to eat vegetables and he's going to drink water because that's a healthier way to live than the way that they're eating there in the king's palace with his food and his drink. So really what Daniel wants to do along with his friends is they're making a healthy choice. And we definitely see that's what happens here in, in Daniel chapter 1, that they end up healthier, they end up stronger than all the other young men in the program here in the king's palace. So that, that definitely happens, but they're... A lot of people, the emphasis they take from this is Daniel's decision to be physically healthy in his body. And I don't think that's the right conclusion to come to. In chapter 10, verse 2, you might want to write that down. Chapter 10, verse 2, Daniel says, based on the prophecy that he's received, and this is many years later, Daniel says in Daniel 10, verse 2, that he's going to go on a fast for three weeks. And over this three-week fast... He's not going to eat the king's delicacies or drink the king's wine. So let me ask you this. If you're going to have a three-week fast from eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine, before that three weeks, what does it sound like you were doing? You can't fast from something you haven't been doing for years, okay? So I don't even think, we're, I think if we get too far into the food, I think we're actually missing the point of what Daniel is doing. In fact, let's just remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what comes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man. When Daniel says he doesn't want to defile himself, it's not about what's coming into him. It's about a decision he's making in his own soul not to give in to temptation and not to compromise with sin. This is how I think we should understand Daniel making this resolution. We have to get into the Hebrew of the passage. Look at verse 7. Try to, try to follow with me here how the Hebrew makes this pretty clear. It says, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Okay? Now, the, the Hebrew word here for gave them names is this Hebrew word sum, and it can be translated a lot of different things. Gave, put, set, Okay? So what it's saying here in the Hebrew is it uses the same word. The chief of the eunuchs set names. And then specifically about Daniel, it says, Daniel, he set Belteshazzar. So here comes Ashpenaz. He's running the brainwashing program. He's setting names. He's saying, Daniel, you're going to be Belteshazzar. And then in verse 8, it says, but Daniel set himself not to be defiled. That's what it's saying. The names is really where Daniel draws the line. You cannot change who I am. You're going to set me to live this way? Well, I'm setting myself against you. That's what Daniel's saying. And I'm going to go talk to this guy, Ashpenaz, and I'm going to tell him I will not defile myself. I will not let myself, who I really am, 
on the inside. I will not let you corrupt me. I will not compromise with you. I am not going to give in to sin. This is what a 15-year-old young man is doing in the king's palace where they're telling him what to do. He's standing up for what is right in his own heart. This is the kind of resolve that we all need if we're going to live for God. Right here. Let, let, well, let's learn an example from a young man here. And let's see his heart for God, that he would set himself. He's not going to be defiled. He's going to continue to worship his God. And this idea of Daniel and his buddies being in Babylon, this becomes a theme throughout the Bible. The name Babylon continues long after King Neb and the nation is wiped out by the Medes and the Persians. Babylon continues. In fact, 1 Peter 5.13, he says, those who are in Babylon greet you. And he's referring to the city of Rome. Rome's the big empire at the time of the New Testament. Their main city there, he says, that's Babylon. So this idea that there's this evil system, this evil empire that wants to take your soul, that wants to defile you, and you can't give in to it, you can't compromise with what's going on around you, this idea continues throughout the Bible. In fact, in the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, when the world actually does form an alliance, and the nations of the world and the kings of the world come together and they all get drunk on the sexual immorality of this evil city where the whole world comes together, guess what the city is referred to? Babylon. In fact, you can read the song in Revelation, Fallen, Fallen is Babylon the Great. From, da- from Daniel on forward, if you want to mention the corrupting influence of the world, if you want to talk about a system of evil that is trying to rot our souls and get each and every one of us to compromise. Babylon is a name that's given for it throughout the rest of the scripture. And it's supposed to bring us back to a place of remembering how even though he was being wined and dined in the king's palace, even though it would have been so easy for him to conform to what was going on around him, Daniel resolved, he made up his mind, he set himself to worship God without compromise, that he would not be defiled. Do you have that same commitment as one of the people of God? Because the world definitely wants to corrupt you. The world definitely wants you to be defiled in your worship. They want you to be compromised. I mean, how many times have you and I heard someone at church say they had one foot in the church and one foot in the... Have you heard that one before? Have you heard it so many times that it kind of sounds like standard operating procedure in the church in America? Is that really okay? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Let's just go clear New Testament teaching and let's just see what it says your attitude is supposed to be. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how are you supposed to think about this world around you? How are you supposed to think about this system of evil that is trying to brainwash you and get you to conform to the way that everybody else is acting? Now here in Romans 12, this is the turning point of Paul's excellent letter here on the gospel. And he's been explaining the gospel for chapters. He's been explaining that we have all fallen into sin. But here's the good news. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself. He came down here and he has righteousness. He has a perfect track record of obedience to God. And his righteousness, he sacrificed himself. He he shed his righteous blood on the cross when he died to pay the penalty of our sin. So here's the exchange that Paul's been writing about. 
by faith you can receive as a free gift the righteousness of Jesus Christ as he pays for all of your sin when he, when he died on the cross. Look at what can happen here. Your sin can be forgiven and you can get righteousness in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, that Jesus is the Son of God, but He loved you so much to offer up His life as a sacrifice to pay for your sin. What are you going to do in response to that? And He just didn't even die for you. On the third day, He rose. And now He's offering you a new kind of life with His power, with His victory over sin and death and Satan. And he, this new kind of life lasts forever. He wants to bring you into His kingdom where He's going to reign for all of eternity where you're going to worship him in complete purity and holiness. That's where he wants to take you. And if you really know what Jesus has done, what is the thing that makes sense for you to do? It says here in Romans 12:1, the only logical response, the only spiritual act of worship we could possibly do if Jesus gave his life for us is we need to give our lives away to Jesus Christ. If he offered himself, the Son of God, a sacrifice for a sinner like me, then surely a sinner like me should give up my life for Jesus Christ. It says you got to be an act of worship. And then it says this, watch out, verse 2, it says, there's a command for all of us who believe, do not be conformed to this world. That's what it says. In fact, you could translate it, stop conforming to this world. Stop fitting in, stop blending in, stop camouflaging with the culture, stop being a chameleon who looks churchy on Sunday and can laugh at the coarse jokes in the office on Tuesday. You got to stop conforming. See, I grew up as a church kid. I actually grew up as a pastor's son. And what I heard, the lie that I was told, was that brainwashing is happening here at church. And we're using the Bible to brainwash everybody. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to make cookie-cutter Christians where everybody's just kind of living the same kind of life, just going through the same kind of motions. And what it says here is that's actually the opposite. You know what we're doing here with the Word of God? We're freeing people from the evil system. That's what's happening. People are being redeemed out of a life where everybody gets pressed into the same mold, where everybody gets conformed to the same image. We're not the ones out here doing cookie-cutter Christians. No, the world is trying to get everybody to conform to being defiled with their own sin. And here's how deceitful it is. Here's how smooth the world is. They're going to tell you, you just be you. And you don't listen to anybody else. You just do you. Whatever it is that you want, be yourself, follow your own heart. And, and everybody thinks, yeah, that's me. I'm an individual. I'm special. I'm unique. And you don't realize that millions of other people are all thinking the same thing. And they're all buying into the same lie. And they're all being defiled by their own sin. That come, There's an evil system getting everybody to corrupt themselves from the inside out. And it says, we can't be those people. You can't be conformed to the world. You can't fit in here. Don't be pressed into its image. It says, stop it. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the truth of the matter. A person who says they're a Christian and they have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, that person is no Christian at all. That's just the facts. If you're going to say yes to Jesus Christ and you're going to offer your life to him, what you have to do along with saying yes to Jesus is you have to say no to the world. It's one or the other. Take your pick. 
You want to go to heaven with Jesus? Then you can't live it up in the here and now. You can't conform to this if you really want that. Which one are you on? Which side are you on? Point number two, let's get it down like this. Yes to God means no to the world. Yes to God means no to the world. You have to stop conforming to the world. That's the, that's the command. It immediately follows those who want to say yes to Jesus. And this is the problem with the youth, with the young people that grow up in the Christian church in America. We tell them the gospel story, the good news of Jesus. We tell them all the miracles, the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes we go through the Old Testament. If we do a good job with the Old Testament, we point out how the prophecies all lead up to Jesus. And we teach them the Bible stories. Most kids who are going to church, who grow up in Christian families, they believe Jesus is the Christ. They think the Bible might be telling them true stories. They say yes to all that. Here's what we don't do as good a job training our young people. If you're saying yes to this, that means you're saying no to this. See, they're not making that connection. And they start to subtly believe that I can say yes to this, and I can also say yes to this. And the temptations of the world are coming on our kids younger and younger. Matt was sharing some stats about how many kids in Orange County that are in 7th and 8th grade are being exposed to things like sexual immorality and drunkenness and just the coarse language that is taken over the middle schools around us, the things that kids will say to their teachers and to adults. I mean, we're talking about children using adult inappropriate language. It's happening right down the street from where you live. People are being defiled at a younger and younger age. And we've got to make sure that everybody knows if you're following Jesus Christ, that means you're not following the way of the world around you. It is one or the other. Pick your side. You want to live in Babylon? Then be a Babylonian. You want to be one of God's people? Then you've got to resolve in your heart not to defile yourself. Which one are you? There's no compromise. There's no in-between. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Look what it says here in Titus 2, 11 to 12. I need everybody to turn there and see this, page 998. It's talking to us as New Testament believers in Jesus, people who've received the good news of the gospel. Do you know the grace of God? Has God been good to you? Has he forgiven you for your sin? Has he given you this new life where you have a relationship with him? Well, if you know the grace of God, his goodness to us, grace has a face, and his name is Jesus. And it says here in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared. This is talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ and his first coming when he humbled himself, born as a man, lives the perfect life, dies for our sin, rises from the dead. Yes, the grace of God has appeared. And he's offering, he's bringing salvation for all people. Anyone can believe in Jesus and be saved. That's how good God is. He'll take the worst of sinners and he'll wash them as white as snow in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And then look what it says in verse 12. That this grace of God that has appeared is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If you have salvation through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then that grace is a teacher in your life. Grace will train you. Grace will instruct you. Grace is not just forgiving you of your sin. 
Grace is now the strength and the resolve not to defile yourself in that sin any longer. Here's something that grace teaches you. To say no to sin. That's what it's saying. I mean, renounce is just a fancy pants way to say no is what it is. No, that's ungodly. That is not from God. I'm saying no to that. No, that is worldly. That's what everybody else is doing who doesn't worship God. I'm saying no to that. That will not corrupt me. That's what grace is supposed to teach us, self-control. Upright, godly lives in this present age. So uh, the question comes to each one of us as we learn from Daniel's inspiring example. What is it that you need to say no to in 2019? What's tempting you from this world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What is tempting you to defile yourself from a pure and sincere love of Jesus Christ? You've got to say no to it. Your whole year will be corrupted. The whole future of your life could be corrupted if you don't resolve, if you don't set yourself against the world. What are you going to say no to? You saying yes to Jesus in 2019? That begs the question, what are you saying no to? What is the subtle temptation of the world that's trying to get into your house and get into your life? Now, when we hear about Bel and Nebo and Aku, we think that's kind of silly, don't we? Oh, the Babylonians, that ancient empire. Oh, they thought they were so big. They thought these false idols, these statues. No, here in Orange County, we've got our idols look a little bit different than statues that we bow down to. But we live in a pretty comfortable place. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I mean, especially if the 405 is wide open, it's really nice to live around here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we live in a good spot. I would say we live in one of the most comfortable places, perhaps, in all of planet Earth. I mean, we, we kind of live in the king's palace. We're, we're kind of being wined and dined ourselves. And we think, well, we don't have those silly idols of the Old Testament. Well, how many Orange County people believe the lie that if they had more money, they would be happier? How many people in Orange County just think if I have a little bit more money, my life's going to be better in 2019? You know what money is? It's an idol in many people's hearts. It's more important than it should be. And they're worshiping it. They're bowing down to it. That's what's going on. You know what's very acceptable idol? In fact, it's applauded here in Orange County is if you make your children the most important thing in your life. If your calendar revolves around your kids, if you're trying to live vicariously through your kids, in Orange County, you're a good parent. And hey, our children are important. But they're not as important as our worship of God. Our calendar, our, our pocketbook, uh, everything, all our daily decisions, they need to be about not being defiled in a pure and sincere worship of God, not in a worship of our children. Our children, if they are the most important thing in our life, that is idolatry. That's Orange County for you. See, we got people in here who are, oh, I love, I love Jesus Christ, but I don't have a problem engaging in sexual immorality. Oh, I love Jesus Christ, but I don't have a problem drinking too much in out-of-control kind of a way. Oh, I love Jesus Christ. Yeah, sure, but I, I'm, I'm overeating to make myself feel better. That's compromise. That's defiling yourself. That's what we're supposed to be saying no to. That's us conforming to the world around us. We're sitting there, some of us maybe are sitting there, watching inappropriate things, knowing they're inappropriate, paying money to keep it going. That's called defiling yourself. That's you from the inside, making a decision to participate in the sin that is all around you. And there was a young man who was 15 years old, and he said, I'm not going to do that. And God used him to take over the nation of Babylon. Just give me one person whose heart is pure and completely devoted to God, and let's see what he does. 
Are you that person? Are you a clean vessel in the hands of the master, the sovereign one who reigns supreme? Is your life completely devoted to him so he can use you, or are you compromised as you sit here today? Are you already defiled, hoping God's going to do great things in 2019 while you're already compromising? See, Daniel, man, we need to learn from his example. I hope, I hope the Spirit will work on your heart. I hope you'll really say, man, if there's a resolution I need to begin the new year of 2019, I need to resolve right now not to defile myself. And how that's going to look is going to be different for different ones of us. The way the world's trying to come and take over our identity, we got to stay true in our heart before God. And as soon as Daniel makes this resolve, go back to Daniel chapter 1. And look what happens, the very next verse. Look how God has Daniel's back. You make a commitment to be all in for God. You just watch how God shows up. You just watch what God does in your life with the person who's completely devoted to him. Right here, verse 9, this is the second of the God gave. Here's the second thing that God does in in chapter 1. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Okay? God gives him favor. Daniel says, I'm not going to go defile myself. He takes an action step, and he goes up to Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, and he says, I can't defile myself like this. And somehow, some way, this chief of all the eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon cares about this little Hebrew boy. And he has compassion on him. He has favor on him. And look what Ashpenaz says to him here. He says, I fear my lord, the king. Basically, hey, Daniel, do you know what you're really getting yourself into? He has signed your food and drink. If you don't go along with the program, why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Hey, do you understand what you're saying, Daniel? If you don't go with the program and it doesn't work out, not only could your life be on the line, even my life could be on the line. That's how it rolls around here with King Nebuchadnezzar. Heads roll around here. You better watch yourself. Now what Ashpenaz does not say to Daniel is no. He just tells him, watch out, be careful. But it actually says that God is giving Daniel favor with this guy. And so look at the wisdom that Daniel has here as a young man. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, so this is now the guy below Ashpenaz. He said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hey, how about you give us a 10-day trial period, huh? Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat, and water to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Hey, how about, how about this? Let's do a 10-day detox. That's basically what he's saying here. We're going to do a 10-day cleanse, all right? And at the end of the 10 days, nobody's life has to be on the line. We don't have to make it. we got a three-year program here. How about you just give me 10 days, and you give us 10 days, and at the end of 10 days, let's see how we're doing, huh? huh? Let's try it out. What do you think? What do you say? Very shrewd move here by Daniel. And so he listened to them. Why are these eunuchs in the king's palace in Babylon who just came in and wiped out these measly Hebrews, why would they possibly listen to these young Hebrew teenagers coming up with these ideas? It's the favor of God. It's God getting their back. It's God working on the hearts of their enemies. You might want to write down Proverbs 16, verse 7. Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. See, when the good hand of God is upon you, he can make even your enemies have favor with you. 
See, God's the one who's in control. He can even turn people's hearts the way that he wants. When God's got one of his people who's living to please him, when Daniel's really living like God is my judge and he's the one I've got to please and I don't got to please everybody here in Babylon, God actually has Daniel's back and Daniel actually starts to have favor with the officials here in the foreign land. And they give him this 10-day trial period, verse 15, and at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. I don't know how you get fatter in flesh eating just vegetables. Sounds like God's doing something here to me. Better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. They're now approved for a three-year diet of vegetables and wine. And look at verse 17. Here's the third thing that God gave. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. He, they picked up the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They, they got good grades there in the Babylon Brainwashing Academy. In fact, Daniel, he's got this special ability. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. If you come back for chapter 2 next week, you're going to see that. That's just absolutely amazing what Daniel's able to do by God's help, by God giving him. Verse 18, at the end of the time, three years are over, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, here comes the day, Ashpenaz, walking in, in front of the king, and here comes Daniel, Hananiah, or Belteshazzar, and uh, Meshach, they're probably using their Babylonian names here. Hey, here's these guys. Remember these guys that we took from the, from the Hebrews? Remember when we got the king of Judah back then, Jehoiakim? Well, here they are, king. And the king spoke with them, verse 19, and among all of them, he goes through every single guy in Babylon U here, and none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They're the ones who get the closest positions to the king. They're now the most trusted advisors. They rise to the top. In fact, this is amazing. Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. They're not just the best of their class. They're ten times better than any of the other king's advisors. I mean, this is amazing. You think this was the front page story on the Babylon Bugle or whatever it was uh, uh, on their news, right? Hey, man, four Hebrews have risen to the top and are now at the right hand of the king. They're now his most trusted advisors. Have you heard about these Hebrew Jewish boys? Yeah, they didn't even eat the food in the king's program. They didn't even drink his wine, and they're the best of the class. Can you believe this? It's spreading all over. And then it says something here that might be hard for us to understand because we don't know the history of the Old Testament. We don't know our ancient Near Eastern kingdoms. But it says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Maybe you've heard about Cyrus before. There was prophecies about Cyrus before he was born. Cyrus is the one who actually tells God's people that they can go back to Jerusalem, that the exile is over, and they can return to the promised and holy land. Cyrus is not a king of Babylon. Cyrus is the king of the Medes and the Persians, the next nation that comes in and wipes out Babylon. You know what it's telling you there, just real quick, matter of fact, at the end of verse 21? Oh, yeah, Daniel, he rose to the top. In fact, Daniel, he outlasted the entire kingdom of Babylon. King Neb, the mighty army, all the Babylonian culture, gods, worship, all of that. Yeah, Daniel, he was still standing after all of that fell down. Here's God giving up his people who won't obey him to a mighty army named King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then God takes one young man who will obey him, and he rises him to the top of that nation. 
Let's not limit what God can do. Let's believe it. He ended up becoming one of the most trusted advisors in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Who does that? You're a leader in one nation. They get invaded by the next nation. You become a leader in that nation too. That's unheard of in all of world history. That's the story of Daniel, who when he was 15 years old, decided he was going to not defile himself. That's what God did. Throw me to Psalm 27, and let's just see that we should expect God to be good no matter how bad life gets, no matter how strong our enemy is, no matter what comes against us. You can expect to see that God is going to be good. If you seek first His kingdom, if you seek first His righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? God is always there for the righteous people, the people who are living without compromise, the people who have made themselves right before the Lord in their own heart. Psalm 27, David, a man after God's own heart. David, a man who uh, won great military victories, wrote great worship songs, a man that God wanted to be king of his people. This is what David says, Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Even if my enemies are against me, I'm not afraid. God is with me. That's what David's saying. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, here, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. Hey, there's people that want to eat me. They want to destroy me. My adversaries, my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army camp against me. My heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This is not just rhetoric here. This is not hyperbole. He's not just exaggerating to make a point. We're talking about a guy who actually had armies try to chase him down and kill him. We're talking about a guy who had his sword and God with him, and here came a whole army against him, and every one of those guys on the other side all wanted to kill David especially. And he said, if God is with me, I'm not going to be afraid of any enemy against me. And then he said this in verse 13. Here's a great verse to start 2019 here at our church. Psalm 27, verse 13. Let's end with this. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. One thing I'm expecting in 2019 is God will be good. Let's get that down for point number three. Expect God to give good. Expect God to give good. I mean, if you're thinking through Daniel 1 and you're thinking about all the bad things that seem to be happening to Daniel and his buddies and the people of Israel, from the moment that Daniel resolves not to defile himself, all these good things that God does. It's amazing. No, you can believe, you can expect, you should have faith that even in the worst case scenario, God is still always working for his glory and the good of his people. In fact, God causes all the evil things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Another nation comes in and invades. That might feel like the end. That was just the beginning of God's goodness to Daniel and his three friends. So I encourage you, put Psalm 27, 13 somewhere you're going to see it this year and believe that you will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait. You will see it. You will see the goodness of God. Mark your year in 2019. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you that we could begin this new year with a new study from the book of Daniel. And God, I pray that you will put it on our hearts, that this won't be ancient history, 
that we're studying, but this will be you working in us today. God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here as we sit here right now, that we will examine ourselves, that we will see where that temptation of the world creeps in, where that compromise is trying to get us. And I pray that we will resolve right now, that we will set ourselves against the way of the world, that we will say no to sin, and we will resolve not to defile ourselves here today. God, I pray that we could begin 2019 with a whole heart offered to you. And God, show us that you're with us. Show us that you will, and no matter how many times the righteous man falls, you will always pick him up. God, give us that faith to believe that even when it seems like we're in such a bad place and the world's going the wrong way, that you are in control and you will be good. God, I pray that whether we're coming from the heights right now of feeling like it was a great new year, or whether we're coming from the depths of temptation and trials, I pray that we can remember right now that your love never fails, that you are a good God, and that we will worship you, that we will wait for you, that we will be strong and let our hearts take courage because we have a God who is with us, and he is good. Remind us of who you are. Show us your goodness in 2019. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.